Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 5, Episode 1, Another Fresh Start. Welcome to Season 5, The Early Heian Period. Thank you to everyone who reached out via Twitter during the three-month hiatus. I did make some progress on the novel, not as much as I would have liked, but enough to keep it happy for now. I also set up a Patreon page where you can support this show financially if you feel so inclined. The URL is patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. I'm going to add some more tiers in the fall for things like bonus in-depth episodes and perhaps some live streaming of me playing Japanese history-themed PC games, and I'm open to suggestions for other such exclusive content. You can reach me via direct message to the podcast's Twitter account, at A History of Japan. Without further ado, let's get started with today's episode. On its surface, Emperor Kamu's relocation of the capital from Heijo-kyo in the Nara Basin to Heian-kyo to the north might not seem very dramatic. Heian-kyo, modern-day Kyoto, is only about 30 miles, 48 kilometers, north of the old capital, a distance which, by today's standards, is almost laughable. It's important we keep in mind a few factors, however, so that we can understand the decision in its proper context. Entry to the new capital, just like the old capital, was controlled via gates. Heian-kyo was not just some tourist destination, and only those who had obtained permission could enter. In addition to the city's walls, there was a moat dug around the place filled with water, which reminds me of the ditches that separated parts of villages during the Yayoi period, though I cannot say whether there was any real connection. Covering the distance from Heijo-kyo to Heian-kyo was about a full day's walk, not something most abbots would be willing to undertake if they were not assured of entry beforehand. While it is generally accepted that Kam Mutenno and his Kuge allies wanted to cut down on political interference from the Buddhist establishment, they certainly had no intention of repressing the religion. I think it is reasonable to assume, after Empress Shotoku's reign of terror and Dokyo's imperial near ascendancy, that the court wanted some breathing room between themselves and the six schools, especially the powerful Hoso school. As we will discuss in the next few episodes, Emperor Kamu was a committed Buddhist whose actions helped to expand the faith to the common people who had thus far seemed fairly non-committal to the way of the Buddha. His strict limitations against new religious buildings was likely motivated by a desire to see the Buddhist establishment connect with the commoners. The design and construction of Heijo-kyo allowed the imperial court of its day to refocus its priorities and impress the populace with a shiny new city worthy of a mighty empire. You may recall that Heijo-kyo was constructed along a grid layout similar to the Tang China capital city of Chang'an. The new capital, however, would prove to be a closer imitation as it was nestled near some mountains instead of on a broad plain. 
Those mountains would prove very important in the years ahead, as Japanese Buddhism would undergo some important transformations. The imperial palace of Heian-kyo was, much like that of Heijo-kyo, placed in the center of the northernmost part of the city. While the roads were built along a grid pattern, hedges and fences were erected and maintained to distinguish the various housing districts within the capital. The houses of the wealthy and powerful were much like those of the Nara period at first, comfortable carpeted floors and stylish exteriors. The homes of the common people were still generally pit houses, which featured a roof built over a dugout pit. Next season, which will cover the late Heian period, we will discuss the changes that occurred in the homes of aristocrats, but the poorest commoners will continue living in pit houses for several hundred years beyond 794. The new imperial palace needed to be every bit as impressive as its predecessor. Wooden construction was the order of the day, but that didn't mean the building was plain. The palace's sloping, curved roof, which is characteristic of traditional Japanese architecture, was composed of staggered, thatched layers of cypress bark. Building with wood meant not only a large initial undertaking, it also meant regular maintenance. Japan is home to many bugs that burrow into wood, especially dead wood, which meant that wooden surfaces needed to be painted working spaces kept clean, and the cypress thatch roofs completely replaced every 30 years or so. Massive construction projects like Heian-kyo have been a popular display of power for monarchs since the Kofun period, when communities were conscripted into laborers to build the keyhole-shaped tomb mounds for which that period was named. Building the new capital, which was 8 square miles, that's about 21 square kilometers, was probably a way for Emperor Kammu to reassert the authority of the office of sovereign itself. Another such display of power was the emperor's meals. Throughout the Heian period, great care would be taken to ensure that the sovereign always ate a variety of food from the farthest corners of his domain. An array of small plates would be set before the emperor, each stacked high with various kinds of fish, seaweed, vegetables, and rice. This high stacking was an imitation of earlier Chinese emperors, whose attendants had pioneered this decadent method of eating. Even with their rich diets, however, chronic issues which are now identified with vitamin deficiencies and malnutrition were common among the aristocracy and royalty. You may recall that last season Prince Asaka was said to have died from complications related to beriberi, a deficiency of thiamine, or vitamin B. Because these kinds of nutrition-related ailments were so common among even the wealthiest and most influential of nobles, we can imagine that the situation for commoners was far worse. In their quest to create a magnificent new capital, however, Emperor Kammu and his allies overbuilt the new city. Covering eight square miles, much of it was still under construction when the court relocated there in 794. 
As the years pressed on and the usual disasters occasionally sprang up, many of the Capitol buildings were in serious need of repair or even wholesale replacement by the mid-800s. In his book, A History of Japan to 1334, George Sansom writes, In the eastern part, by as early as 850, most of the great halls and government offices had been destroyed by fire or allowed to get into a hopeless state of dilapidation. By 900, the official building of the Chancellor had centipedes in the ceiling and wasps' nests hanging from the roof. The first two temples in Heian-kyo were specifically intended to perform prayers and rituals meant to protect the state. The emperor's primary function was not to govern, but to perform rituals throughout the year according to the national calendar. These included rites from both Buddhism as well as the native kami worship. Two-thirds of every year was devoted to performing these rituals, and indeed the emperor had many daily rituals he was expected to complete in order to satisfy the gods, or the Buddha, or both. The sovereigns who managed to become visionary leaders like Kammutenno are all the more remarkable for how little time they were afforded for matters of governance. Emperors in the Heian period tended to produce a lot of children by many different wives and consorts, and it was common for the royal daughters to serve as Saiyo of the Issei Grand Shrine in southern Kansai, or Saiyin of the Kamo Shrine, which was located to the northeast of Heian-kyo. The northeast direction was considered, in Chinese geomancy, to be associated with fell spirits and demons, so the Kamo Shrine was critical to protect the capital and the government itself from evil spiritual influences. Emperor Kammu was very wary of allowing Buddhism too much influence in the new capital. He would have been 27 years old when Empress Koken returned to the throne as Empress Shotoku and began persecuting any would-be replacements within the imperial family. I did not find any evidence that Kammu himself was ever targeted directly, he was probably ignored because of his family connection to Baikje, but it seems likely he would have experienced moments of fear and terror at the possibility of running afoul of the Empress and Dokyo's wrath. Kammutenno recommended that those who wished to pursue a life of tranquility in the hopes of attaining enlightenment should do so in remote areas like mountaintops, away from the distractions of population centers. This strikes me as a reversal of the previous government policies, which often looked upon rural Buddhist practitioners like Gyoki with suspicion and even occasional persecution. Government ministers who supported the previous urban policy probably believed that keeping the Buddhist establishment close would enable them to control it. The events of the late Nara period proved that this strategy could work the other way. The court of Emperor Kammu now had their bigger and better capital in which to conduct the state's business. On the international stage, this meant keeping a close watch on their neighbors of Silla in Korea 
and the Tang Dynasty in China, and continuing to encourage positive relations with Balhai in northern Korea and Manchuria. United Silla was regarded with open hostility, but any supposed plans the imperial court may have had of assisting Balhai in an invasion of their southern neighbor was a fantasy at best. Japan had not been a significant naval power throughout the Nara period, and its last attempt at becoming the masters of the waters they shared with the Korean peninsula ended in a crushing military defeat that likely still haunted those who read the accounts of the Battle of Baigong. The court's relationship with Tong China was far more complicated. While it is clear they did not trust the Tong dynasty, there were practical reasons to maintain at least passably amicable relations with the rulers of China. The Dazaifu Fortress on Kyushu continued in its function as a guardian of the western frontier, but it's doubtful that even the most overconfident of Japanese commanders believed they could hold back a full-scale invasion if the Tang Dynasty mounted one. There was also the matter of cultural exchange, the practice of sending Buddhist monks and secular scholars to China for training had helped to spur the intellectual development of Japan's ruling class. Though occasionally this meant that scholars would be favored over hereditary aristocrats for high offices, the books, concepts, novelties, and training they brought back seems to have been worth risking the occasional up-jumping pencil pusher. Emperor Kamu had already gained a reputation for pragmatic domestic policy, particularly his revocation of the old draft military service system. The provincial governors were expected to recruit their own troops from local gentry now, a responsibility they gradually passed to their underlings. While this relieved the imperial court of the financial burden of salaried troops, it also resulted in a gradual increase in the total number of armed fighters among the population. The warrior class did not yet have any political clout, but most of you probably already know that this is bound to change. We'll have a lot more to say about the networks of fighting clans and their increasing political influence next season. Another target of Kamutenno's reforms was the Handen Shujo. This was the Japanese version of the equal field allotment system adapted from Chinese inspiration. Tang Dynasty China, it should be noted, abandoned their version of equal field around 780. Under its original application in Japan, common citizens would be counted on the census and allotted a certain amount of farmland, depending on the size of their family and ages of their children, with a roughly 3% tax rate. This land would be redistributed every six years to adjust for new circumstances like children coming of age and older cultivators dying or becoming too ill to work. This system never seems to have worked very well for Japan and was already showing serious signs of decay in the early Heian period. Emperor Kamu had already doubled the period between reallotment to 12 years, but even this was irregularly enforced from place to place, and by the early 900s, it would vanish completely. One of the main reasons for its decline was the Shouen. 
The Shouan estates were private land in the truest sense of the word. The Shouan operated tax-free, could be inherited by the owner's children, and often operated autonomously of the imperial government. The estates operating during the Nara and Heian periods are referred to as Shoki Shouan, or early estates. Nearly all of the Shoki Shouan were owned by Buddhist temples or nobles who held office in the imperial government. Rather than a system of permanent serfdom, the fields of the Shoki Shouan were rented year to year to local farmers. The Ritsuryo government of these respective areas, which you may recall was the administrative divisions like county, district, etc., were often tasked with finding available labor to work the fields in the Shoki Shouen. As the large estate owner's wealth increased, and as the burdens of the remaining tax base increased, it became common for smallholders to donate their land to a nearby monastery or sell their land to a local noble to add to their Shoki Shouen. The smallholder would then rent the land for much less than what they would have owed in taxes and continued farming. Those who worked the public land of the Handen Shujo often absconded entirely during times of drought or famine and sought shelter on the Shouen as laborers. This transition from taxable public farmland to massive private farms was more gradual than you might think. Many small private farmers weathered the storms of high taxation, and it should be remembered that some places were better for farming than others. Small-holding farmers and the workers who tended allotted fields weren't on a path to extravagant wealth, but many found ways to survive and get by without taking the drastic step of selling what little land they owned. The Heian period was also a time of population decline, which limited the amount of land which the Shoans were able to farm. Surplus land is of no advantage without people available to make it productive. There are numerous reasons that the population declined during this period, but probably the largest factor was the continual battles against epidemics. While the Heian did not see anything quite as devastating as the catastrophic smallpox epidemic of 737 which we discussed last season, Western Japan proved to be a vulnerable area for diseases to enter, and thus Kyushu and Chugoku would be acutely affected by the repeated bouts of plagues which tested the immune response of each new generation. Finding sufficient laborers to work farmland was a struggle for both the government and the private estates in the 800s and 900s. Emperor Kammu introduced a new curriculum to the National University which emphasized the divine nature of the Tenno as a son of heaven. Throughout the Heian period, the powerful clans would found universities for the sake of training their young men in the three C's, Confucianism, Calligraphy, and Chinese Classics. This was largely rote memorization, but in A History of Japan to 1334, the author highlights a few interesting anecdotes. There is the account of Fujiwara Otsugu, who served as Sadaijin, or Minister of the Left, and resigned his office because he believed his knowledge of yin-yang was not extensive enough to perform his duties. 
Sansom also lists the account of a Fujiwara minister who dismounted from his horse when he encountered university students on the road to show respect for their pursuit of knowledge. He argues that these actions, among others, indicate a high respect for learning and a larger desire to conform the government, as well as personal behavior, to Confucian ideals. So who attended these universities? While the public examination system was technically available for anyone in the free castes to take, a person would need to be literate in Chinese script in order to take the test. Practically speaking, this meant that the universities were only available to the aristocracy and their children, if they were utilized at all. Many of the rural universities founded by more powerful regional clans were essentially just libraries, and some were even governed by men who did not, themselves, possess any graduate degree and sometimes could not even read. But the emperor and the court placed a high value on such accomplishments, so they were maintained year after year to stay in the government's good favor, even if some were really just glorified libraries. Many Kuge valued learning and creative expression, which meant that poetry continued to flourish during the Heian period among the aristocracy. At the end of this season, just like last season, I will read you some poems written by the people we cover in this early period of Heian, so you can hear their words for yourself. The Heian period is often described as a time when Japanese culture flowered, forging a unique character independent of its neighbors. In future generations, revolts would sometimes list among their stated goals a return to the laws, customs, and power structure of the Heian period. With a brand new shiny capital, Emperor Kamu and his allies in the Daijo Daikon were ready to continue their policies of reforming the nation into a proper monarchy. Next time, we will take a closer look at how those efforts changed Japanese Buddhism forever. Until then, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at A History of Japan. Visit the online store, ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com, and find us on the web, ahistoryofjapan.com.